0: Y'all know us, know how we earn a living. We'll record this podcast for you, but it ain't going to be easy. Bad dorks, not like going down the pond chasing Batman and Star Wars. These dorks swallow you whole. A little shaking, little tenderizing, and down you go. And we got to do it quick. That'll bring back our listeners. Put all your businesses on a pay-in basis. Hey, what are you doing? Shaw's. I'm doing, I'm doing that movie Shaw's. Cause It's that movie where... You know, Robert Shaw, he hunts a shark and, you know, he's so good, they they named the movie after him?
1: I think he got something backwards
0: there, Gabe. Oh.
2: Yet another unwanted sequel.
0: Hardly the worst, I might say, in our own defense. Uh, So apologies, ladies and gentlemen, but welcome to what I understand uh, to be the Jaws installment of Dorkfest, the podcast, where today we intend to talk about the whole damn thing, this remarkable movie called Jaws. We hope everyone listening is happy, healthy, and safe, and thank you for joining us on another voyage through dorky waters. Before we really bite into the meat of this topic, let's meet the crew we're setting sail with here. Dan Freemuth, you think we'll need a bigger boat?
2: One of, if not the most misquoted lines in cinema history. It's not, we're going to need a bigger boat, because it wasn't Brody and Hooper's boat to begin with. It's Quint's boat. The line is, you're going to need a bigger boat.
1: Improvised on set by Roy Scheider.
0: As was much of this script come to, uh, come to that, but we'll discuss some of this uh, as we go. And, of course, right there you hear the voice of our resident fisherman and survivor of the disaster on the USS Indianapolis. Uh, how are things, Mr. Josh Freemuth?
1: Here's to swimming with bow-legged women.
0: And those ladies of Spain. Uh, and finally, uh, with us also is a young researcher we've called in from the Oceanic Institute, uh, Mr. Jordan Freemuth. Uh, have you got all your gear packed, Jordan?
3: I do. And if you wonder where we are, we're, we're uh, right in a stretch where the uh, the large predator has been feeding recently. Um, uh, would you like a pretzel?
0: Yeah, I never understood what that line was when he's got his mouth full of pretzel there, but I always got the pretzel bit. Yeah, that, some brilliant acting there, of course, for Richard Dreyfuss and everybody uh, here in this great movie. It's a uh, Jaws is celebrating or has just celebrated, I believe, its 45th anniversary this uh, this summer here. And in honor of the July 4th weekend, we're trying to keep our beaches open, And we wanna talk a little bit about the movie that put Steven Spielberg on the map, this cultural phenomenon that took over the summers and maybe defined the rest of ours from here on out as far as the movies go, Jaws. Uh, So to start us off, before we get into into Jaws, before we dive too deeply, let's uh, warm up to this a little bit and talk about fear in the water. What's a memory you guys have of being afraid in the water? Josh, you wanna start us first?
1: For me, it's not a memory. It's every single time that I go to the beach or read a story about a shark attack on the eastern seaboard where I most often go to the beach. Fear of sharks in the ocean is is not a memory, is not something abstract. This is something that just any logical, rational human being should, should think and feel when they go to the beach. These things are everywhere. They will devour you uh, and leave little to nothing behind. Fear in the water is a constant for me,
0: Gabe. I, you know, and it has something to do, I think, with the fact that you just can't see that far into it. You know, I mean, there's some, there's a difference between a pool and a lake and open ocean. Yeah, there's a, something a little impenetrable there about that. Jordan, what about you? You got, uh, got an early memory of being afraid in the water? For me, it's that it's that initial trepidation, that
3: initial fear of actually going into the water, of actually you know dealing with the waves that will crash in on you, uh, you know slowly uh, adjusting yourself to the temperature in the water compared to the temperature outside. But that would be that would be my earliest uh, fear in terms of water, which is just really that it's just so darn
0: cold. Uh, for myself, I was. Um... Uh, you know jaws certainly plays a role i think in, in all of us everybody says that it's always tough to get back in the water as jaws too asked uh, just when he thought it was safe to but for me an early one was uh relatively shallow in the surf i was relatively young and i discovered what a riptide was or at least you know the, the pull of the ocean it was explained to me what a riptide was i was not out that far but um yeah the uh, the fact that i was desperately trying to swim into the beach there you know my little seven or eight year old self and the water kept moving me away that was uh, you know, just the natural power out there, that was uh, that was an uncertain moment for me. Dan, you want to take us home? You got any memory of, uh, of fear in the water?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't have any personal fear, water-associated fear memories. Uh, I mean, I think, yeah, I echo all the sentiments about the trepidation once you get out into the water and, and being unable to see to the bottom of the ocean that, you know, you're not quite sure what else is out there with you. I wouldn't say that so much shark related, but I definitely know that going on the Eastern seaboard, as Josh pointed out, you start to get out in the ocean and every once in a while the lifeguards have to call the swimmers or those who have gotten on like paddle boards, they start getting out there a little deeper. And I see those folks out there and you can't help but hearken back at least visually to a few moments in this film we're talking about where things don't go so well for folks that drifted out a little too far into the ocean. So I definitely have had some, uh, some Jaws movie recall at least from a visual standpoint through the years. But I would say, you know what, Uh, Josh, sharks are not everywhere. And more people die from getting vending machines fall on them every year than shark attacks. So I think you're really kind of giving them a bad rap here. Well, but there's also Gabe's
1: Riptide. There are renegade boat propellers, a myriad of stuff to terrorize you. And as you say, Dan, you can't see anything. As Jordan said, it's freezing cold. There is nothing about this that should not terrify a rational human being. I I am happy to be the enlightened one.
2: This was not a propeller accident.
0: (laughs) Uh, Before we move on to our end, I'm glad Dan started to go down this route because I've been asked by my sister, a lifelong caretaker of the earth and all its many creatures to, before we get into our one point question here, dealing with the star of our show, Jaws himself, itself, herself, the shark, I was asked to clarify a couple of factoids she pulled from the World Wildlife Organization that all deal with the relatively low number of human deaths versus, uh, or let's say shark-caused human deaths versus human-caused shark deaths. Dan spoke to the rarity of shark attacks. Uh, His statistic was that you're more likely to get a vending machine falling on you. Claire's here is that you're more likely to be struck by lightning. It could be, too, that uh, there are greater odds, even than of uh, Dan winning another Dorkfest podcast. So these are... um,
2: Never tell me the odds. (laughs) Yes, but how many people actively will will
1: fight through traffic to go stand in a lightning storm? Gabe, this is my point.
0: Well, we're going to have those beaches full, Josh. Don't worry. I just want to make sure that people know what they're, what they're wading into out there, you know? Um, She wants me to note also that the majority of sharks, in fact, eat uh, fish or invertebrates like squid or some clams even. I don't know how that works, but I'm sure she'll explain it to me at some point. Maybe she'll leave a comment. And though Jaws is famously a great white, not all sharks are big with the sharp teeth. Some sharks are as small as eight inches. She mentions the deep water dogfish for you you marine biology fans out there. And some sharks uh, have teeth they don't even use for feeding. And she personally notes that if you're scared of the 40 foot long whale shark, they're filter feeders. That's why they're called a whale shark. They are not interested in eating people. They're just kind of gentle giants out there. And, folks, I promise that's the most educational dork fest the podcast will ever get. You will never hear a less educational hive of scum and villainy buzzing with dorky bits. And to that, to our one-point question, let's get into the serious dorky business. What are the best shark scenes in Jaws? Jordan, I want to I uh, give you the rudder first. I want to give you the helm.
3: Well, thank you for that, Gabe. There are so many that you could potentially choose from. Um, I mean, the opening scene is, is you know, one of the most famous in film history and perhaps one of the most terrifying in, in the entire movie. But I'm actually going to go with the uh, swim, Charlie swim shark scene. It's kind of a dynamic scene. Like, you're not sure whether you should be laughing at these two fools that are using a holiday roast to try to to try to catch this, this giant shark, or if you're supposed to be terrified for them because they're you know potentially going to be eaten by said shark. But also one of the brilliant things about this scene is something that's really brilliant about the entire movie, which is the the, the less is more concept that Spielberg uses. Uh, he doesn't show you much in large part because the shark was such a disaster that it didn't allow him to show him much, or show much, but you you have this great part of this scene where the, the dock that has been torn off and then floated into the water, then all of a sudden turns around. And that's used, and the, the music sort of upticks at that point too. And, and that's used to sort of communicate the terror and the fear that we should be feeling in that moment. So while that scene might not be the most terrifying, I do feel like it's one of the most emblematic of some of the tools that Steven Spielberg uses in this film.
1: Yeah, what what was those two guys plan? Like <laughs> they stick this giant meat hook into the roast and what? Did like do they think that when the shark bites it, the hook is like this hook is going to catch this giant shark and it's just going to float to the surface this seems like a terrible idea by those two guys it's a great scene to your point jay to, to, to me boy swim charlie swim uh you know you're you're, you're la- like you say jay you're laughing at these guys but you're also panicked for them and and there is a tangible sense of relief when the when the feet finally stop scraping against the deck and finally do get out of the water
0: Josh, I think you've put more thought into this idea than those guys did, but I think that's also the point. You know, they they just don't know what they're messing with here. It's, it's just another way of proving how formidable this uh, this shark is. He's outwitting the local idiots. You know, already they're trying, they're putting a roast on a hook and pier fishing, and yeah, that clearly uh, doesn't go terribly well for him.
2: That That is a great scene, and I think John Williams' score, which we'll talk about plenty, I think really amplifies that scene as well. And Jordan makes the great point about the, the doc spinning back, that terrifying, creaky sound as the dock pivots 180 and then comes back, and then all of a sudden the terror really starts to set in. I can't say what is the best, the best. shark scene in Jaws because... I don't know that you can narrow that down to any one scene, but I'm going to go it back. ain't getting the point. Well, I'm going to do my darndest. You just wait and see. I'm going back to the very beginning, the the opening scene. I mean, terror sets in in the opening three minutes of this movie. These innocent kids, they're out, you know, having a couple of drinks. They decide to go for a, you know, a late night drunken skinny dip. And all of a sudden things pivot on a dime here really quickly and as Chrissy is getting dragged across trying to clasp to this this buoy out in the middle of the ocean I mean those shrieks are palpable they are real the the making of this scene she was basically on a harness and being dragged in one direction and then dragged back in the other direction and she did not know which direction she was going to be dragged in at any given time. So it's a very real terror that sets in. She is screaming and yelling her brains out. Meanwhile, that that poor fella, he's passed out drunk on the beach. So you know he's not going to be of any help. She's yelling and screaming. And we as an audience know there's no help in sight. Whatever has got her, whatever you know is looming right now, it's just her and it. And clearly she cannot defend against it at all. The music escalates. She's yelling and screaming. She comes closer to the camera. And then all of a sudden, just underwater. And the music gives out. And we're left in silence. And now we're left to wonder, wow, okay, what in the world is going on here? And it basically sets this terror peak right from the very beginning. And I give this movie a ton of credit because as scary as that scene is, they don't let their foot off the gas. There are several other really terrifying different but still terrifying shark moments as this movie goes along. But Spielberg sets the stage right in the opening five minutes and does it brilliantly.
0: That, uh, that scene has always stuck with me, Dan. I mean, because it, it is such an uncompromising opening to that movie. It lets you know immediately what it is you're in for. And everything after that is different. I mean, you know, you start off with, all, with these underwater shots and the credits and John Williams' score, as you mentioned. And, and already you're starting to make the link between that score and the shark. And, yeah, when she strikes, and, and we're locked in with her there, out there with poor Chrissy, and it's, yeah, it's horrifying. And every shot after that of the water is loaded. Everything is dangerous. You know, not long after Brody finds what's happening, there's a shot of him standing on the pier looking at a team of swimmers in a, at a swim uh, lesson out guided by a boat. And it's, you know, it's, it should be a simple, unremarkable thing. And, you know, he's seen the remains, I think, at this point, and he knows what those – the waters – what's in the water with those kids – um, every shot after that of the water it takes on greater importance. I think that's a great scene to bring up. Josh, what about you? Have you got a, uh, a scene in mind calling out Dan for not having one in particular? He just sort of so what what have you got? I'm curious.
1: The one for me is the, is the sort of extended scene starting with you're going to need a bigger boat and ending with the first barrel and the chase afterwards. Um, the first time that we get to see the shark, it, in its glory in its terror it it goes from brody's line where he's talking about chumming and he's ticked off that he has to do the chumming and that all hooper has to do is manage to take the boat slow ahead and the audience has a little chuckle and that's when the shark pops out and and it's that like laugh into a scream uh and then Brody is just frozen in terror and all he can do is is manage to spit out you're gonna need a bigger boat. I always thought that line had had a bit to do with like passing the buck, like like Brody is so scared, is like, I am not the guy to deal with this. You, you were going to need the bigger boat so that you can deal with this shark. And then there's the great interplay between Quint and Hooper as they're trying to get the barrel attached but Hooper's also trying to get this like tracker device attached to the barrel. Quint is ticked that that Hooper is not tying it on fast enough and they do manage to get it just in time but you're but you're still getting shots of the shark kind of circling the boat uh, and then when it gets harpooned and starts to chase away and Hooper is trying to run it down but then the shark outruns it and then you have Hooper standing out on the, on the sort of crow's nest and he's, you know, swaying back and forth with the boat as the sun is setting behind him. I just think that whole scene maybe like 12 minutes or so it's almost like a brilliant short film like it's it it really tells a story from start to finish with some humor some laughter plenty of terror uh chases involved john williams um great shark chase theme is is in here and that sounds great so that that's the that's the scene that i always think of as that this is the apex moment for the shark
3: and I think yeah. that's great, too, because it's also sort of like I've always interpreted that as a bit of a unifying moment for Quint, Brody, and Hooper. Because, you know, up until this point, we've seen them bickering back and forth a lot. And there's that great interplay between Quint and Hooper where Hooper says it, it's, it's a 20-footer. And then Quint says 25, three tons on him. And, it's, and I've always seen it as like Quint says that more in awe than more, more so than like trying to one-up. Hooper. It's this moment when they all sort of very much realize the the catastrophe that they are in together.
0: That sequence is as perfect as Josh expertly describes. It's um, and it's really the start to what is almost an entirely new movie within Jaws. There, there is a distinct, and I'd like to touch on this more later. But yeah, as the, as the shark attack scenes go, the shark encounter scenes go, a stone cold classic for sure. It, it's the one that sort of lets you know how the rest of this movie is going to play out they set up the actions they set up a lot of the they foreshadow a lot of the elements that are going to get brought in towards the end of the movie that yeah that's those those 12 minutes as i think that's pretty much about right yeah those are that's a high point in jaws for sure yeah i think that's just great josh and for myself i'm gonna round out uh, at least mentioning some of these with the beach attack that costs poor little alex Kintner his life as well as uh, someone's poor dog this is the next big attack of, uh, of the shark. You know, we, we've got the body and there's some alarm going about it, but nobody quite knows what's going on yet. And th- this is again, just a really unforgiving scene. And it's great because of the way it builds tension. You know, only you're, you're seeing this mostly from Brody's point of view. And again, everything is charged, every shot of the water, everything, uh, every scream of, you know, delight or joy from a kid is suspect. And Spielberg builds in a couple of these little red herrings. He's got, uh, some old footy in a, in a swim cap who's swimming nearby that looks sort of like a shark fin. He's got uh, a shrieking girlfriend who's being you know, put on her boyfriend's shoulders as he swims up uh, beneath her. And then finally, there's one last sort of trick up there, and that's then the dog goes, and that's the quiet one. Then we know it's serious, and it's, it's signified by that, uh, you know, that dog's been playing fetch this whole time, and there's just a floating stick in the water. Same as poor little Alex Kentner, who just wanted 10 more minutes in the water, begged his mom to go back in, picked up a, a yellow floaty, and that's his identifying mark when all the kids come back except Alex. And, yeah, that, that thing floating in the red tide is uh, it's just brutal. But it, it really, again, it, it sets the stakes for this. This shark this shark doesn't care. This shark is going to keep eating. And it's, um, it's, it's really suspenseful, too, and it includes that famous shot by Spielberg.
2: Yeah, Gabe, you're referring to the, the push-pull shot where when the attack finally comes on Alex Kintner and the raft gets overturned, it's that shot where we zoom the camera in the same shot we zoom exclusively in on Brody while the background becomes further further away so we are now focused exclusively now on Chief Brody and even before that some really dynamic editing and directing work by Spielberg where they used passers-by to sort of cut in front of Brody and that allows us to change our perspective so a beach goer passes in front of Brody and now we shift to the ocean view and then another person passes by and that allows us to cut back to Brody. Just really a beautifully executed work there by Spielberg.
0: There's another trick where that one obnoxious guy gets kind of in his face and he's talking about something about parking permits or whatnot. And there's a that lens, there's a particular t- t- technique because not only is the foreground perfectly in focus because that's all you're basically seeing right out of Brody's view. Because he's got one eye on the ocean uh, and watching everybody else in the background um, as well. Yeah, no, that's um, the shot you described, Dan, is, uh, is a, uh, and fittingly for this movie that owes so much to Hitchcock in the first place. But it's referred to as a vertigo shot, um, which is the effect used to simulate in the movie Vertigo, uh, Jimmy Stewart's fear of the, uh, of, the, of the heights. And it's, yeah, that, uh, the camera zooms in while it, the camera is also pulled away from its subject.
1: Not long after this scene is another little one that's my that one of my favorites. It's not uh, the shark, but it is a shark. The mayor, Harry Vaughn, who is just a tremendous character, is talking about performing a half-assed autopsy on a fish, and he's not about to stand here and watch this little Kitner boy spill out all over the dock. You know, not the titular shark in question, but uh, a, a, a cool shark scene. A what? It's a Dang tiger shark.
2: <laughs> Gabe, I, I want to follow up on your, that's Alex Kittner scene. So that takes place on the beach, right? We're, we're gearing up for 4th of July weekend. This is big business for the this town. It needs to be, these beaches will be open. Put your businesses back on a paying basis, right? So we've got to open up the beaches for 4th of July. Not all that dissimilar from a time in which we're living in right now when maybe from a health and safety standpoint, the beaches shouldn't be open. For, but from an economic standpoint, we kind of need them to be open. So kind of some interesting play there on the 45th anniversary of Jaws.
0: Look, eventually the scientists will be wrong, I'm sure. That's what everybody's banking on. And I'm certain, you know, sooner or later, that'll be the case. It just wasn't the case then and it's not the case now.
3: So then is, is Hooper Fauci? Is that, is, that, is that what's going on here? Let's not read too far into this. <laughs>
0: They're both about the same height, though.
2: So not long after the Alex Kintner attack, the beaches are open and everything appears to be going okay. And we get, you know, Brody is obviously tense and he's concerned. And we get that moment where we think, shark, shark, oh my God. And no big deal. The packed beaches, it's okay. It's just two kids with a shark fin you know, playing a prank. Of course, they have the boats out there and, and Hooper's out on the ocean and they got the guns pointed at the kid and the old, like, little brother, you know, he made me do it. And we think, oh, okay, we, we thought we were going to have an attack and it didn't happen. And then all of a sudden now in the pond, in the estuary, now we've got this one girl, shark, shark, and now all of a sudden it's, you know, it's the boy who cried wolf, right? It's, oh, okay, now we got to go check this one out. But then all of a sudden this hits close to home because as Brody's wife points out, Michael's in the pond. And so now all of a sudden we kick into high gear. And this is when this movie really starts to hit close to home, literally for Brody, right? Michael and his friends get attacked on the boat. This is a brilliant scene because there's a lot of tension and there is a little bit of gore, that bloody severed leg that comes down. And then you're really starting to be like, okay, we're, we're in officially a monster movie here. And, Michael thankfully is not attacked, but he ends up in the hospital and he's in shock. And the little brother is is crying. And now, and this is this is what moves Brody officially into action. Before he had tried to convince Mayor Vaughn that we need to close the beaches. He had tried to convince him that there was a shark out there. And now we cannot argue this. He's got the paper form to sign in the hospital. We're gonna pay this guy what he wants, and we're gonna get this thing caught. And this is that's such an important shark scene because it's what it's basically the midway point of the movie right it's all the shark attacks have happened but we've been on land and this is that turning moment where now all of a sudden we're not going to let the shark come to us we're going to go after the shark
3: it's also a turning point for Brody you know there's this whole component in the film of him not being an islander of him being an outsider and it's the turning point where he kind of at least to an extent takes charge communicating the message that they need to hear
1: one more shark scene that has always been one of my favorites is in the when Hooper is in the shark cage. Him getting lowered in is another great like slow burn of, of tension. Uh, but before and and you see you see the shark kind of swim away, and then it comes and crashes into the cage uh, from from behind. Hooper can't see it coming. His his little pole that he's going to try and use to inject, uh, you know poison into the shark to kill it another brilliant plan <laughs> you know floats away and now hooper is just hopeless but what i've always loved is the shot where the shark kind of gets like stuck in the cage and it's just thrashing all over the place and that just, was always the scene where i was like whoa like that is some really explosive footage and it turns out that that is live shark footage that Ron and Valerie Taylor shot, who were two documentary filmmakers who worked on the shark documentary, blue water, white death. And this shark, you know, swam into this cage, this shark cage that they were filming and got stuck. And evidently that's what white sharks do when they get stuck. They just go crazy and started thrashing all over the place and ripped the cage from the boat. And there was no, actor or dummy in the cage when they were shooting it and so spielberg loved that footage so much that he changed the script to have hooper out of the cage at that moment so that he could use that footage it was so explosive
0: they saved matt hooper because that character also dies in the book i think i believe from uh, by peter benchley
1: yes hooper does die in in the cage in benchley's book
2: I was just going to add, as dynamic as that footage is, that is some of the rare, real-life shark footage that is used. Even the shot where Hooper is still in the cage and the model of the great white is bearing down, thrashing on this cage, I still watch that all these years later and think to myself, if I was in that cage as an actor and I know this thing is a model, that would still... I think, scare the crap out of me. That's how effective that shot is. That's how effective the model, when it was working, that's how effective that was. Just a really tense moment, even though you know it's completely fabricated.
1: And this from the guy who's not afraid of the water. Good point.
0: It is, I think, a testament to, because that's a a shot where the shark is seen almost in full. You know, you've gotten good chunky glimpses at it at this point. But now you're that's as close as you as we've been to it at that point. So we've seen how scary it is from a, you know from a far distance. And now we're right up close. And I think that scene is even more effective for how little used the shark had been necessarily to that point. And then yeah, how well the shark is used when deployed. Uh, it, it is amazing. Spielberg is like 26 or seven when he makes this movie. He's not yet 30. And, and yeah, the, the craftsmanship, just some of the instincts on display and you know some of the happy happenstance that goes into making a movie like assembling this cast and an excellent crew really does this movie incredible service.
3: Gabe I like that you bring up the effectiveness of actually seeing the shark because that to me brings up two other scenes that I think are really effective shark scenes. Um, one which we'll kind of dub the show me the way to go home scene because you know in terms of like the effectiveness of seeing the shark it's it's really the moment where like the shark becomes the monster. And that scene where Quint, Hooper and Brody are sitting in the ship and they're enjoying a drink and they're they're showing off different scars and trying to one up one another. That's the moment when for me, this goes away from being a shark movie and goes kind of towards being a horror movie. Because at this moment, this is when the shark or the monster begins chasing them. And that requires a certain level of suspension of disbelief. That is not something that an actual shark would do. An actual shark would not chase a ship. It wouldn't have any reason to. But in this case, it's, it's not a shark. It's not any old shark. It's Jaws. It's the monster. Um, So I think that's just a really interesting moment in terms of, you know the different sort of scares that go along with that and then the other one that I think we have to talk about is the Quint versus the shark scene which is of course the scene at the end Quint's death which you know Quint's such a such an interesting character because he's in many ways he has he has a myriad of unsympathetic qualities even though you adore him you you he's incredibly amusing and and there's something very attractive about him in a sense even though he is a immoral character in a lot of ways but that death scene at the end is just so it's so innocent it's so sympathetic he looks terrified as he should and as anyone would in that moment um i think that that final scene going from you know quint battling with the shark and then finally brody defeating the shark that's another magnificent scene as well
0: Quinn's death is, uh, is particularly striking, especially in the wake of the Indianapolis speech when you realize that he's basically dying facing his greatest unresolved fear. And it's yet, the thing you know, that's
3: been chasing him
0: since then, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's, um, it is sad, and, and, he's, you know, he, and effectively he's just gone. And it's pretty – those are tough stakes for Roy Scheider at that point, too, for, for Chief Brody, because that Hooper's gone to his mind at that point. He's out there alone facing the shark.
3: I love that, like, jubilant laugh that Brody provides after actually, you know, blowing up the shark. It's, the, it's this, like, combination of, on one hand, like, yes, I did it. And on the other hand, like, I can't believe that actually worked. I feel like it's just emblematic of how we are all feeling. that the, the tension that releases in that moment is symbolized by that, that jubilant laughter.
0: That's spot on. Uh, I, I think that's a great moment because yeah, it is exactly that. That's their, that's what allows the whole audience to release their tension at that moment. The shark's gone. You know, Brody hit it. It's exactly what he wanted to do. And it is equal parts. That's such a great way to describe it. Yes, I did it. And holy crap, I can't believe that work. That, that is it is such a great moment of joy. And yeah, then the rest of the movie just gets to float along by on some really little T. John Williams. I mean, it, it's wonderful. Dorks, a fine showing as always uh, here, you know, analyzing these from within our own individual quarantine shark cages. For our first uh, point, I want to give this one uh, to Jordan, uh, particularly if, if we had a good, a lot of uh, analysis going on here, but particularly for the notion that I think sums up the entirety of all these shark attack scenes, that Jaws is a monster, not a shark, just to assuage my sister too there. So I think, uh, yeah, I thank you for that. She'll feel better that this is not a true shark, but some sort of aberration of nature. Yeah. But I think that is the, that's the way to think about it. It's, um, and that is the, the moment at which the transformation finally happens. They're even stuck in kind of their own haunted house at that point. You know, they've taken – they're still on an island. It's just a boat. The whole thing has shrunk to a far smaller scale, That's it's that effective for it. So one point to Jordan for starting off this category. Thank you much. All right. Uh, moving on to our second point question. We, we've brought up uh, – all the performances in Jaws are, are wonderful. Spielberg's always had an knack for getting wonderful, either naturalistic or, you know, sort of contextually appropriate – performances out of his actors. There's a whole bunch of delightful ones, but three in particular, uh, the main characters we're going to talk about here and have mentioned very much already are Chief Brody, Matt Hooper, and Quint. uh, Played respectively Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, and uh, as you might have heard from earlier, the incredible Robert Shaw. So we want to talk a little bit about these guys and specifically why these guys. These are sort of the the people who find themselves, not through destiny, not through any sort of prophecy or anything like that, looking at you, Jaws 4, these are the three people that just sort of came together that were called together in a way to take care of this thing it, in the end of the day, it had to be them. And why is it they work so well together? Why Brody? Why Hooper? Why Quint? Why the three of them? And why does it work so well <laughs> at the end of the day? And Josh, I want to point this to you first, show us the way to go home.
1: Well, I think one of the reasons that it works so well is the adversarial relationship between the actors Richard Dreyfuss, and Robert Shaw. In, in all of the literature and interviews and behind the scenes and making ofs, you can find story after story after story of Robert Shaw just giving it to Richard Dreyfuss every single moment of filming, just making Richard Dreyfuss's life a living hell as Quint was trying to do with Hooper. Quint does not respect Hooper. Quint does not believe that that Hooper's scientific knowledge has any particular bearing on catching and killing the shark. He doesn't believe that he's physically capable of doing it. Now, some of these stories from filming are pretty humorous, like Shaw daring Hooper to, to match pushups with him. Um, also, Shaw daring uh, Dreyfus to climb to the top of the crow's nest of the orca and jump off with, and he kept daring him saying like, I'll give you $500 if you do it. Now I, I, you, you're, you're, such a wuss. You won't do it. I'll give you a thousand dollars if you do it. And eventually Spielberg jumped in and said, he's not allowed to do this. I need him to be alive, to finish the movie. So that, that tension played out perfectly with the tension between Hooper and Quint, they are, as Jordan mentioned earlier, they are almost always trying to outmatch and one up the other and then in those rare instances where they're not where they are actually working together or commiter- commiserating over like shark related injuries it's such a relief to us the audience that okay finally these guys are getting along and then of course that deteriorates once again but those that relationship between those two characters is my favorite in in this triad and i think that it would have really been hard to replicate that with any two other actors.
2: I think part of what makes these three guys work so well, first of all, just from a production standpoint, this is perfect casting. It's rare that you see three main characters in a film cast so expertly, all three of them. You get three main leads, two may be a hit, and the one you may be like, well, why didn't they get so-and-so? Or maybe they could have gone in this direction. And I say that with none of these three guys are anywhere near my favorite actors of all time. I mean, Robert Shaw has been in a handful of movies that we've enjoyed. You know, R- Roy Scheider has been in a couple of movies that we've enjoyed. Ditto for Richard Dreyfus, but we're not talking about Harrison Ford or Kevin Costner in baseball movies here. These are just guys that came together that were cast for this movie and the casting was absolutely perfect. Now, from a storytelling standpoint, what I think makes it work so well is we've all heard the phrase being the third wheel, right? You go on a date, the two of you are supposed to be there because you're going on the date, but the third person is not supposed to be there. They're the third wheel. And what works in this triad is that There are different pairings at different times. Hooper and Brody can kind of get together because they believe in the science. And we think the scientific approach is going to be, you know, the way to go here. And Quint's kind of not an island because he's going to be, you know, Captain Ahab in this scenario. But then also Hooper and Quint can kind of pair off because they're accustomed to – being on the water and and hunting big fish, and they are very comfortable at sea, and that's not at all, you know, Chief Brody's realm. And then sometimes it feels like Chief Brody, ironically, being a chief, has to, you know, play good cop, bad cop between these two guys and sort of police the relationship. So I think it creates this dynamic where two can kind of pair off, leaving the other one, but those pairings can really alternate as the movie goes along, and it creates some really interesting dynamics between the characters until that Indianapolis moment and the show me the way to go home moment when it feels like they finally have come together. It started a little bit, the first revelation of the shark where it's almost like, there's a very real chance we're not gonna catch and kill this thing to begin with, but we sure as heck are not gonna do it if we don't put our differences aside. Then they have to actually execute, but their plans of execution are all a little bit different. And so then only at the very end do they finally kind of come together. And in in coming together, are they able to vanquish the shark? Yes, Quint, he's a victim of the shark, but only in coming together are they finally able to accomplish their goal. But some of the best moments of this movie are when they're not at all together, that the antagonism between the characters is really well played. It's because they all bring something a little different onto the boat.
0: I think it's a great point, Dan. Um, and this is true from the moment. These characters are so well drawn. They, uh, they really exist. They, they come in with worlds of their own and, you know, the way each of them is introduced, I think really gives a, a suggestion as to who they are in a, in a way that, you know, movies don't always part of the reason we like Jaws so much is for how well and how immediately we're drawn into these characters worlds. I think your point about, um, The third wheel aspect that each character is kind of a third wheel to the others at one point at one point or another is is a great one. That push and pull and push again is kind of what what drives the entire second half of the movie. Um, as they get out onto open water and they're the only only folks we've got there.
3: I think another thing that sort of ties all of them together too, and I actually have to give credit to to my wife for this point. uh, As we were rewatching it the other day, she she made this point that you know Brody, Quint, and Hooper are all passionate but about different things. You have Quint being passionate about hunting or about fishing, about being out on the water and sort of a, like living my own life, not, not having people tell me what I'm gonna do. Hooper is very passionate about the scientific realm of of, a you know, passionate about oceanography and passionate almost to the point of arrogance and of thinking that he's smarter than everybody else of, you know, wealthy college boys, not, not knowing enough to admit when they're wrong. And then Brody, you know, you have him being passionate about protection, about protecting his family,
0: but then also protecting the citizens of Amity. And each one of them gets sort of, you know, 60 seconds to themselves in their introduction. And I think each one of those points to what you're talking about. I mean, Brody's introduced as a family man and then as a cop, uh, you know, he kind of don't know what he's doing until he back until he gets into his truck. And it says, you know, Amity police. And, and he's, and he, off he goes there. Yeah. You know, that's it. That's his world. Hooper is a fish out of water from the moment he steps onto the pier and that big guy is there to greet him. Uh, you know, he's unable to sort of blend with the locals. He's not an Islander, neither is Brody. That's another sort of relationship there, uh, as Dan would mention And yeah. And Quint is, has that great literal nails on chalkboard uh, intro that we um, that I think somebody quoted at the start of that I don't know I don't know who's whose misquote that was but, but that too lets you know exactly where Quint is you know he, he's to the point he's got and then even sort of arguably Quint's secondary introduction when we get to his his dockside shack and there's just nothing but shark and other aquatic fossils around there there's even one mounted to the Orca which itself is you know one of the few natural predators of sharks and especially great whites out in the ocean. I mean, they, there's all these little pieces um, and they're brought to wonderful life by all three of the actors. And Dan's right. It's, it's perfect casting.
2: So who is everyone's favorite? Do people have a favorite among the three? Is it, is it possible to separate the three from the movie? I mean, do, do you guys have a, a favorite among that triad?
1: My favorite's definitely Quint. It, my I am just glued to the screen every time Robert Shaw is, is on there, and the way he delivers the dialogue. I'm I'm, I'm thinking of one scene where, it like, it, it kind of at the start of the Orca segment of that second half of the movie, where. Quint's got the fishing pole and he's kind of directing Hooper which way to go and he just just looks back and with such disdain Hooper you idiot starboard ain't you watching it oh it's just, just this electrifying line reading and it, I think Quint is probably my favorite, just because of how electric Shaw is. I mean, he is just—you know—as we've said in other podcasts—dialing it up to eleven. Like this is Christopher Walken levels of electricity that Shaw is going for, even when he's subdued. Um, the the Indianapolis speech is just haunting. Shaw actually, the, the the writing of that speech has a has a long history. It was one guy's idea, and then another guy. Took a crack at writing it. Shaw it, it, at one point took a crack at writing it, and it became this thing that he was able to per- perform I, I, again. It's like a almost like a one act play. Shaw is a as an accomplished playwright as well. He, he's he's definitely my favorite character.
2: Isn't the story with that scene as well that Robert Shaw uh, had a huge drinking problem and was was drunk, if not working on getting there throughout most of this movie, but particularly in that scene. And the version of the story that I've heard is that the final cut in the movie is actually two different takes. One take is Robert Shaw absolutely ripped as he's doing that scene. And they did it and Spielberg was like, you gotta sober up, we need to do this again. He came back did the scene again sober and the final product is some sort of mix between the two and the only way you can tell which version is I guess if you look close enough you can see which one is pupils are dilated the most to tell which one is the drunk Shaw version and which one is the sober Shaw version but I, I think it speaks volumes because it's clearly a seamless performance in the
3: end a little too much uh, drinking to each other's legs I guess But I think, you know, Josh, to your point, Quint's definitely got a lot of the great lines in this film, perhaps none better than when he sees the anti-shark cage as they're getting ready to ship out, and he says to to Hooper, you go in the cage, cage goes in the water, shark's in the water. Ah, shark. But for me, I think Hooper might actually be my favorite of the three for a similar reason. I feel like he's got some especially nice snarky lines perhaps none better than the line to the mayor when he says i think that i'm familiar with the fact that you're going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you on the ass that that sort of snarkiness and and arrogance is is a really central component of the character um and to me is something that you find at times endearing and at times a little annoying you know he's not an entirely likable character but for me that's actually one of the things that makes me enjoy the performance that much more
1: that snark is there right from the start with hooper <laughs> they're all gonna die <laughs> talking about the the, the clowns
0: o- overloading boat. the boat. one of them are gonna get out of the harbor alive isn't that the line yeah
2: I, I think it's so interesting that you guys went in those two directions because my initial thought was brody's my favorite and i think <laughs> so you ask three of us and we all give three completely different answers which tells you just how, how, you know, perfect these three characters are and these performances are for me and Brody. He's the one that I can relate to, right? He's the fish out of water. If it were me, that would be me. I would be the fish out of water. I don't know how to catch a shark. I don't want to chum that stuff. I wouldn't know, you know, one end of a boat from the other. Once, you know, we got out onto the water, I would be terrified when, when Quint, tells my wife, don't worry, we're just out here, you know, catching a couple of stripers, we'll be right in, no problem, and then he smashes the radio later on, I would be saying, yeah, you're certifiable, <laughs> like what in the world is going on out here? And then to be able to have that victory moment with Brody, the, the sort of every man at the end, as Jordan, you pointed out, his harebrained scheme somehow came together, and you get that that joyful exclamation at the end, I'd, I've always – taken to him, I think, just because he seems to me like the relatable sort of everyman in, in the movie.
0: It's kind of like a boy band, you know, there's, everybody's got their favorite. But but that's also exactly how these characters are are set up. You know, you've sort of got the, you know, it, it's tough to just pigeonhole them. You know, I, Roy Scheider is absolutely meant to be the the sort of accessible common man, everyman character on this. And, and I'll say, st- you know, traditionally he should be the hero. And I think that's what makes Brody interesting is, You know, yes, he is the guy gunning the shark down at first, but he is also openly and honestly out of his element um, a lot of this movie. He does, you know, he's reading books about sharks. He's trying to catch up. He's trying to do the work, but he's got one concern, and it's everybody's safety. You know, and even Hooper has sort of, he's got, uh, You know, he's on the phone, he's denying some trip to Australia because he's like, no, I've got a great white up here. You know, everybody's sort of got, and Quint, of course, just seems to like killing sharks and uh, maybe has a bit of a vendetta against them. One wonders why. But no, that's great that each of you guys have your favorite. I think this is a great analysis of, of these characters. It's worth noting. um, We, we, Dan opened this by talking about the perfect casting implement, you know, shown here in Jaws. And, and uh, I just want to mention some people also considered for the main roles before they cast our our respective three, the role of Martin Brody was offered to Robert Duvall uh, who only wanted to play Quint if he was going to be in it, which that's an interesting, uh, you know, what could have been. Did Duvall ever work with the, Spielberg again? We'll have to check that. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, Martin Brody was also offered to Charlton Heston, who Spielberg didn't want. He had a theory that he didn't want uh, some famous faces coming in, sort of muddying up what he thought was going to be. He wanted the, the shark to be the star. That was the idea. He thought that memories of these other actors, and he's not necessarily incorrect, would sort of bring themselves into the theater and, and uh, corrupt some of the experience there. Um, It's notable, too, that nine days, apparently, before the start of production, just over a week before they started shooting, neither Quint nor Hooper had been cast in this movie. They only had Roy Scheider, which is, yeah, boy, you think about that and how they pretty much lucked into these guys. Quint, the role of Quint was also offered to Lee Marvin and Sterling Hayden. Uh, I think that would have been a very interesting, maybe sort of more mutiny on the bounty-ish type of of thing there, although there is some debt owed to Moby Dick and Captain Ahab, and I'm crossing my sea tails here. And the role of Hooper, the young kid there, was also offered at the time to John Voight, Joel Gray. And maybe the one thing that could have been potentially considered, at least if not an improvement, an interesting alternate universe tale, Jeff Bridges was also offered the role of of Hooper. And that would have been kind of an interesting. But again, uh, this is sort of the movie that starts that bit of collaboration between Richard Dreyfuss and Steven Spielberg, who Spielberg, you know, came to think of as his alter ego. So it's interesting to... um, And who, frankly, even in this movie, look rather similar, I think. When we're talking about Jaws, it's hard not to see Spielberg in some of it.
1: Dreyfus, in the way he tells the story, is that Spielberg offers him the role and he tells him the story and what all is going to be involved in shooting. And he says, I think this sounds like a great movie. I would love to watch this movie. I want no part of making this movie because it is going to be absolute hell to make. And then, as you say... Gabe, just before the start of shooting, Dreyfus sees himself in the premiere of his most recent film and thinks his performance is awful, and that he just needs to get a job as quickly as possible before people realize that he can't act. And he, you know, calls Spielberg back and says, "If you want me to do this movie, I'll do this movie." And I mean, what a what what a gift from heaven that was!
0: It's uh, funny. Um, sort of PS to that is apparently part of the reason Robert Shaw was so PO'd at uh, Richard Dreyfus this whole time was during the shooting of this, Dreyfus was apparently getting rave reviews for his performance in that movie. So uh, Shaw was a little, uh, he was a little peeved, I think, that maybe his, um, he wasn't going to get, maybe he was going to get overshadowed by this young upstart Mr. Hooper.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's, worth, it's worth saying that as much as I love Shaw and his performance of Quint, it's, it's definitely probably I could go so far as to say morally reprehensible the way he treats uh Hooper uh, or pardon me the way he treats Dreyfus I get these people mixed up in my head so close the casting is that perfect you know Shaw is as Dan says is was an alcoholic I believe he had three wives ten children and dead at 51 so it's very possible that that you know it shouldn't be exalting robert shaw the human quite so much but as an actor if you want to say the happy byproduct was this um was this brilliant acting that we got to see
0: no i agree with you um and it's not necessarily to excuse the the terror that goes on around this we can make the same thing about somebody like stanley kubrick who yeah phenomenal director total a-hole to his actors a lot of the time especially say sure uh, Shelley duvall and the shining and yeah this doesn't uh the brilliance of his performance and it is doesn't necessarily overshadow the fact that um, occasionally it's worth taking Lawrence Olivier's advice to Dustin Hoffman for Marathon Man. Why don't you try acting, my dear boy? It's much easier. But it is a truly great performance. So, you know, sometimes it's um, it's tough for our artists to be more than their art. Boy, guys, what a breakdown of, of all this stuff. And I'm going to be a little unorthodox again, and I'm going to split our two-point question. I'm going to give a point each to Josh and Dan, uh, just for, I, I think, some some good analysis here for Josh, for his breakdown of of the onset relationship between a couple of our favorite actors and Dan for his, for his perfect casting nail on the head uh, and the analysis of the third wheel uh, leaving, I believe everybody standing at one point each going into our third round question.
1: Dan, I'll give you my point. If you climb to the top of the orca and jump off,
0: where do you think I'm
2: calling in from right now?
0: Well, didn't we smash the radio? Well, we've come to our three-point question, which means we're going to stop letting the shark chase us out to sea, and we're going to start leading him back in toward land, and we're going to talk a little bit about what is Jaws' legacy. We've talked a lot about this movie and its various pieces, but we've called out previous uh, dorky things on other podcasts for being less than the sum of their parts, and Jaws is a movie that absolutely exceeds the sum of its parts. Everything comes together to make something uh, that has stayed with us and and rippled through All kinds of industries and and all kinds of the culture to stick around and still be kind of a living legend. So, Dan, let's start with you. If we're talking about Jaws' legacy, what are we talking about?
2: I think if you're talking about the legacy of Jaws, I think you're talking about the greatest movie that has been made over the past 50 years. I want to say that it's the greatest movie ever made. I'm just not certain that I can put it ahead of Casablanca, but I cannot think of another movie that has been made in the past 50 years that is better than this movie. We've already talked about how it is perfectly cast. It is perfectly directed by Steven Spielberg. And Gabe, as you pointed out, this is a young Steven Spielberg. This is not, I've been in the industry for 20 or 30 years and I make Saving Private Ryan Steven Spielberg. It is because of this movie that Steven Spielberg is given the opportunities to do so many of the things down the road that he does. We have barely touched on John Williams. Now, we had an entire podcast basically dedicated to him, so I don't feel too badly about not name-dropping John Williams more than we have tonight. But his score for this movie is damn near perfect. Yes, the main Jaws theme gets a ton of publicity, and deservedly so, but there are so many other great themes and so many other great musical moments. It was listed as the sixth best Uh, original film score by AFI when they released their top 25 film scores a number of years ago. I just think everything about this movie is perfect. It's perfectly cast. It's perfectly shot. It sounds perfect. And this was at a time in 1975 when summer blockbusters did not exist. The summertime was a time to dump movies that you thought weren't going to be all that popular, that didn't quite have the hype that the big blockbusters, the Academy Awards seeking films were going to have. And this movie changed everything. This was before Star Wars had the summer blockbuster aspect. In fact, Star Wars was really the next one, but Jaws came first. And so as it relates to its legacy. I think its legacy is very simple. I think it's the greatest movie that has been made in the past 50 years of movie making.
3: That's a really, really hot take. And, but not, not one that, you know, not one that's indefensible. And Dan, I think you did, I think you did a great job of defending it. You know, I think too, what's interesting when you think about that is how this film succeeded in spite of itself and in spite of the, the its monster, the shark, that for the vast majority of the film didn't even work. And and you know, sort of speaks to the brilliance of Spielberg Spielberg in that sense of how he could make the movie as frightening as it was without necessarily having the thing right there that was supposed to be scaring all of us. And that for me speaks to another part of its legacy, which is how it communicates and how it informs monster movies and horror movies after this point. You know, this, this movie, you know, serves in to a certain extent as a blueprint for monster movies, alien, which came out after this was, was very much pitched as jaws in space. And when you watch that movie, it is very much, you know, very similar in that sense, but also something that we brought up earlier is the, the less is more, Horror concept that that really permeates throughout this entire film, and how you're terrified as much by what you don't see, um, and in fact terrified more by what you don't see than what you actually see. I talked at the beginning of the podcast about that scene with you know Charlie swimming away from the floating piece of dock that's that's coming towards him, but you also have you know even the scene that I talked about earlier with the the shark you know, attacking the boat, you don't see the shark actually doing that. You see the interior of the boat being attacked from one side to the next, to the next, to the next. Gabe, I think it was you that talked earlier about the Alex Kittner attack, and you don't see Alex Kittner getting eaten. You don't see that. You see the raft floating onto the shore. You see before that, the, the stick that Pippet, the dog, couldn't could, that was left unfetched. And what you have there is just that wonderful array of horror that is not shown.
0: These are great points you guys are making, especially if we're, since we're talking legacy. Jordan, your point that it that Jaws sets a blueprint for storytelling, not just, as Dan pointed out, that it sets sort of a blueprint for Hollywood as a model. It, yeah, that, that Jaws basically invents the idea of the summer blockbuster. Um, it's sort of the first rung on the ladder toward the PG-13 rating. Um, and yet, Jordan, as you point out, Alien is a is a perfect example. Pitched as Jaws in space, just like Speed was Die Hard on a bus. You know, I mean, this is these movies become touchstones for other, and you know, occasionally also beloved movies, and sometimes not. But either way, they change things. And Jaws absolutely has done that. Especially as you say, with the, it, uh, it's notable too, Jordan, as you say, that Jaws sort of points the way forward, especially given something of the debt that it owes to the movies before it. We mentioned Alfred Hitchcock and Spielberg himself has referenced stuff like Godzilla and Ray Harryhausen effects movies. And it was, uh, and I think even something like enemy of the people is referenced when he was, when he was crafting the screenplay with Carl Gottlieb, the screenwriter, or the second one, the one that's credited alongside Peter Benchley. And yeah, it manages to weave all these things together from the past to sort of become something that points the way toward the future in multiple ways. Great points, gentlemen. Josh, you want to balance out our ballast?
1: Yeah, I I will. And I'll I'll go sort of outside the realm of film and into the, the realm of kind of public health and safety that Dan was mentioning earlier. It's certainly a timely legacy of Jaws to be that sort of warning about not doing something that you would ordinarily do because there is this public health hazard. I can't count the number of Jaws memes and tweets that I've seen over the last 3 months about people opening up establishments that maybe shouldn't be open or may would certainly pose a greater risk than they normally would have because of the pandemic that is that that's the second quarter of the Jaws movie is should we open the beaches? Should we not open the beaches? Okay. We've closed them, but now we're going to change the cause of death to a boating accident. And then we're going to close them down again after we have an attack, but then we're going to open them up again when we think we caught the tiger shark. And then we're finally going to close them down for good after the big fourth of July, the big cataclysmic events that, you know, you had warnings and you could have listened to them, but you, didn't and it's not that they were doing something that they you know that that is inherently dangerous going to the beach on the fourth of july is something that we all do from you know at one point in our life for all of my personal trepidation you're very infrequently terrorized by a killer shark but that is of course what happens here um and it's just a timely uh, way that jaws legacy dovetails into our current life right now
2: And I think just to piggyback off of that and talking about Jaws and the pop culture aspect of it, I think it goes back to our warm-up question, the idea of being afraid to go in the water. That was a huge issue on the heels of the release of this movie. And I think 45 years later continues to be. I also think part of the legacy is, is there any more recognizable association between the Jaws theme and the idea of if not specifically an impending shark attack at the bare minimum, impending doom and danger, that simple theme is so associated with that that i I would argue people who have never even seen the movie. they've never watched even five minutes of it. If you ask them, what's the theme, the Jaws?" they would go, "Uuh." Dun, 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 right because people just know that and i also the last thing i want to say and full disclosure jaws is my favorite movie of all time so i get to geek out on this just a little bit and talk about you don't
1: about say it,
2: i know i know if <laughs> it's not painfully obvious but jordan mentioned the idea of of the less is more and it feels like we at times in movie making now are so inundated with Computer-generated effects, CGI, over-the-top effects that take us out of the movie and just drop us into this computer-generated world. And we've talked about the issues that this movie had with the malfunctioning shark. If you've seen the documentary, Richard Dreyfus, the shark is not working. The shark is not working. Who, Bruce? Bruce, Exactly bruce was was not working most of the time as we now know but the genius filmmaking behind this meant it didn't matter because they found the busted dock that they could spin around and create terror and we haven't spent nearly enough time talking about the barrels if not for the barrels how in the world do we know where the shark is what it's doing, the barrels pop up. We know danger's coming. The barrels are in motion. We know the shark is chasing them or the shark is running from them. Those sort of genius strokes actually create more tension because we can't see the shark. And the movie does such a good job of I'm going to say limiting screen time for the shark. I know that was out of necessity, but when you get really close looks at it, you sort of think to yourself, okay, I I don't really want to necessarily see a whole lot of that, but horror movies work well in that sort of unknown scape. And that's where this movie really succeeds. And the last thing I'm going to say about it is why I think the movie is so darn good is because it basically is every genre of movie mixed into one. There are elements of comedy, there are elements of romance between Brody and his wife and his family. There are some wonderful scenes on the family landscape, particularly the one at the dining table when Brody's youngest child is mimicking his every movements as he's getting drunk following you know, this nearest attack. I mean, that's phenomenal. There are comedy elements. There's obviously horror. There's action. This movie literally has everything.
0: I mean, I don't think any of us are going to disagree with you at this point. I mean, we're, this is—I mean, who who are we to disagree? That that's—and uh, it's all correct. I mean, that's the thing. The Jaws is Jaws stands the test of time in pretty much every measurable category. You know, people say, like to say—you know—as far as effects measuring, they like to go back to Jurassic Park and say that still looks good. I mean, you go back even a little further, Jaws still looks pretty good. Yeah, you get too close up with the shark, maybe you can start to see some of the wires, as it were, uh, you know, some of the puppetry going on, but boy, at that point, you're just so scared out of your pants, it almost doesn't matter. It's notable, too, the almost improvisational filmmaking that led to a lot of these choices. You know, Richard Dreyfuss also likes to say, it's probably in this documentary, that they started shooting with uh, no script, no shark, and no cast, (laughs) no no actors. And that's, um, I mean, even if we were to talk about this for a little bit, we can probably name a good handful of movies that started off or had similarly troubled productions and found themselves as they went. And I think, again, it's a testament to the various strengths in this movie, cast and crew and writers and, you know, and even marketing to create the phenomenon that Jaws became.
1: Yeah, Gabe, uh, another quick shout out. I believe you mentioned earlier Carl Gottlieb. He is... In the movie, as the sort of newspaper reporter, but he is also credited as the screenwriter because it was basically him and Spielberg every night before the the next day's shoot, writing scenes, figuring out what can we shoot, you know, what technology is working, what technology isn't working, what can we possibly do, and if I can get a page written and filmed, then I can just keep moving forward. Uh, Carl Gottlieb certainly deserves. Uh, plenty of the credit for the success of Jaws.
0: It's a fun scene to imagine. I understand too that, yeah, it, it's uh, sometimes in these meetings between uh, Spielberg and Godley would also be the cast. And a lot of what ended up on the page was sort of the result of these quick sort of improvised scenes that would come up, that would come out of the actor's mouths also. And through, certainly this continues on through to the boat, as as we understand they were going to need a bigger one, uh, as Roy Stratter says. We get the whole Indianapolis speech. I mean, no, there's a whole lot of, and again, just to, one more feather in Richard Dreyfuss' cat. He's clearly having so much fun just pouring everything into Hooper that he can The faces he pulls at at Robert Shaw when he gets mad at him there toward the end, you know, sort of flicks him off with the arm and he pulls a bunch of, you know, weird faces on him.
1: Don't have to take this abuse much longer. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Dorks, it may actually be safe to go back in the water because Dan's scorching hot take I think would have boiled all threatening elements out of the vicinity. And uh, I do want to mention one thing. I'm going to split up the points a little bit again, but obviously no ties in Dorkfest, So we are going to resolve this thing. I want to give one of these three points to Jordan for remembering the name of the dog on the beach there that gets overlooked all the time. And, and yeah, poor Pippin. Alex Kintner gets all the attention and rightfully so. And his mother should be mad and, and slap Brody around a little bit, but where is, you know, justice for Pippin? a quick point to Jordan there. The other two, Call me a softie, but I I think he's thoroughly earned it. They got to go to Dan, and Dan will be crowned the winner of his favorite movie, Dorkfest, the podcast. How can I not give it to him? How has he not earned it thoroughly after just laying his whole life down on the line for calling this movie the best ever made, asterisk, Casablanca?
2: I appreciate that, Gabe. I I really do. It felt like if I could not... Worm my way to victory in this Dorkfest podcast, then it was unlikely I was ever going to achieve victory anywhere else and it it actually it makes sense, you know Dorkfest, as you know, means friendship
0: we got to start printing that somewhere as our as one of our taglines. We got to get
1: that on a t shirt
0: <laughs> just when he thought it was safe to go back to the that's
1: market. a money maker for sure
0: uh, guys again it always wonderful to speak with you all and always wonderful to to get some. Dorkiness frothing the water in there as we as we travel around Martha's Vineyard. And thank you for all of our listeners again for joining us on another installment of Dorkfest the Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in every time and please rate, review, subscribe. Please continue to lend us your ears on whatever platform you enjoy your podcast. And follow us on Instagram at Dorkfest underscore podcast. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies and gentlemen out there, and see you next time on Dorkfest the Podcast. Martin it's all psychological.
2: If you yell barracuda, everybody says, huh?
0: What? You yell
3: shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July.
2: Show
1: me the way to go home.
2: I'm tired and I want to go to bed.
0: I had a little drink about an hour ago. And it's gone
3: right to my head. Bump,
2: bump. Wherever Wherever I may roam. roam